Welcome to the weekend message from Mariner's Church in Huntington Beach, California. Whether you are listening across the street or across the globe, we hope you'll find encouragement for your daily life through this podcast. I wasn't raised going to church, so for me, Easter always was about the chocolate and about the bunnies and the Easter eggs and the baskets. How many of you are sort of like me? You weren't really churchgoers and it was mostly that stuff? And then I guess the rest of you are church people, right? Okay, well, good. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, every, all of us have sort of different thoughts when it comes to Easter and the meaning behind it. Uh, reminds me of a story by Ken Davis. He tells uh, there was a lady that was looking out her kitchen window, and she looked into her yard, and she noticed that her German shepherd had a rabbit in its mouth and was sort of shaking the living daylights out of it. And so she screamed out of the house, pried the rabbit out of the dog's mouth, and realized she was there too late. And then she looked down and she saw a collar around the bunny and realized it was the pet bunny of the people next door. And so she freaked out. She tried to clean it up and realized that wasn't going to work. So she got sneaky and she went to the pet store and she bought another bunny and put the collar on it. And then she snuck over to her neighbor's house and put it in the cage, hoping that that would all be okay. A couple of hours later, she heard screams coming from her neighbor's house. She ran over. The mother was looking at the bunny and said, three days ago, our bunny died and we buried it and it's been resurrected. (laughs) There you go. And you've always wondered, how do bunnies and resurrection go together? And now you know, now you know the rest of the story. Uh, You know, it's kind of an interesting statistic, though. The Rasmussen Report says that 78% of us believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead, which to me is kind of an amazing statistic. Uh, It means probably in this room, more than 78% of you believe that. Some of you may not be sure yet, but uh, a lot of us believe that. And many times in church, we kind of think that as long as people believe that, I guess our work is done. But if you think about it for a second, there actually is another question that comes up, even if you're going to grant the fact or grant the idea that Jesus rose from the dead, that that's a historical fact. And that is this, what does it matter? I mean, really, what does it matter? That happened 2,000 years ago, halfway around the world, in a totally different culture, And it may be interesting, an interesting part of history. It may explain why the church started. But really, I mean, in 21st century Southern California, Orange County, when we go about our daily lives, why would that make all that much of a difference? And that's really what I want to talk about today. I want to talk not trying to prove or whatever that the resurrection happened, because I guess most of you believe it. What I want to talk about is, what does it matter? Why do we care? And uh, there's one way to answer it, and that is that God cares. God actually cares a lot about the resurrection. And in fact, we know it because it's kind of the centerpiece of his Bible, of the story he wants to communicate to us. Uh, The resurrection actually is kind of a hinge point where the whole Bible leads up to that point, And after the resurrection, the whole Bible moves on from that point. It's kind of the foundation of what the Bible leads to. And God's story goes something like this. I'll try to give you in a really concise, short, two-minute version. You get the whole Bible in two minutes. Uh, Basically, God created the heavens and the earth. He did so with the intention of love and creativity. 
And really, the sort of the fundamental thing that happens is he gives birth to life. And the life of human beings, the life of this beautiful world, the life of the whole animal kingdom, the life of people's relationships with each other, all of it was harmonious. It's called shalom in the Old Testament, the Jewish word for peace. All of it worked together perfectly. It was orchestrated exactly as God wanted it to be. And then the story goes that human beings decided that they were going to rebel from God, that they could lead things and do things better without him kind of interfering or getting in the way or overriding them. And so they pushed God away. And now a new element was introduced to the creation that had not been there before, and that is called death. And death came in physical forms, and death also came in relational forms, where all of a sudden there was this new ingredient between uh, human beings called selfishness, and all of a sudden there was not so much shalom in relationships. And the harmony that had been created between human beings and the environment and human beings and the world and how nations relate to each other, as we all know, that kind of fell apart and did not function the way that it should be. And then most, most important of all, is our relationship with God was also hampered. The intimacy that had originally been designed by God into his creation, now there were walls, now there was hurdles, now there was sinful, selfish people trying to come to a holy God. And God establishes this very elaborate sacrificial system, really just reminding people again and again and again, I love you and I forgive you and we're going to work through this. And if you hang with me, we can make this thing work. And so God is reminding uh, his people year after year for centuries that we can bring this back together. But what happens is that whereas God created things for life, we see death always eventually wins. So God forms a radical plan. And he says, here's the plan. I'm going to come to earth disguised as a human being. And I will live the life that my people live. And I will come and I will be perfect. I will not sin. I will not rebel. But I will experience all of the consequences of sin. And sure enough, Jesus comes and he teaches and he models and he builds a small community of people. And then we all know that the day comes when he's betrayed, he's arrested, he's tortured, and finally he's killed. And it looks like death has won again. And that brings the climax of the Bible together. On the third day, they went to the tomb, and it was empty. Jesus had conquered death. Jesus had stared death in the face, and he pulled out its stinger, and he said, Death, where is your sting? It is gone. And the whole Bible really pulls to that point. And the idea that Jesus conquers death all of a sudden shifts everything. And now the Bible portrays a world where we deal with death. We deal with the issues of selfishness and human beings breaking down in relationship and nations against each other. But there's a whole different way that it's cast. Namely, in the end, life wins again. In the end, life comes together. In the end, it's shalom. In the end, it's peace. And that's God's good news. That's where we get the word gospel from. That's what the gospel means. And to believe that Jesus died for our sins is that sacrifice, and he rose on the third day. That is at the heart of the good news. So God clearly believes that the resurrection matters. It matters hugely. 
His word says it. The Apostle Paul says in one point, if the resurrection didn't happen, we are fools if we believe it. There is nothing to the Bible if the resurrection didn't happen. So God clearly puts a heavy emphasis on it. But I want to bring this back again to us. Okay, so let's say you buy that. Let's say you agree with it. Let's say you've prayed the prayer. Let's say you believe that. I still want to ask the question, why is that relevant for us today? And one of the reasons that's relevant uh, happened uh, a few years ago when I was uh, in a relationship with an older guy that had become a Christian later in life. He was a newspaper guy, real skeptical kind of guy. And he really had a hard time believing the resurrection. And then one day he came to me with a big smile on his face and he said, I figured out the resurrection thing. I said, you did? That's great. How did you figure it out? He goes, well, he must have risen from the dead because I talked to him every morning. And I was like, yeah, that's a, you're exactly right. I mean, if we believe the resurrection, here's the implication. He's alive. He's alive. He's here right now. Jesus is here right now. Jesus is walking with you every day. He's involved in your life. He's orchestrating things that happen. He's there when we pray. He empowers us. He guides us. That is the implication. It has extreme relevance to us because he's alive. And so what we want to do is we want to look quickly at three people who had encounters with Jesus in the hours, in the days, and in the weeks right after he rose from the dead and to see if there's something that's relevant to us about their lives and what it meant to them when they came face-to-face with Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 20. We're looking at John chapter 20. If you don't have your Bibles, it's cool. We're going to bring it up on the screen so you'll be able to look at the portions of Scripture we're looking at. But in John chapter 20, we're introduced to, well, not introduced, reintroduced to a person who's fairly prominent in the Gospels. Her name is Mary, Mary Magdalene. And Mary is an interesting person, and we are introduced to her after Jesus dies. She is the first person coming to the tomb. In fact, it's still dark out, and she's coming to the tomb. And the question comes up, why is there such urgency for her to get there before the sun comes up? And uh, we have a picture of the tomb here that, she, that they believe, actually, that Jesus was buried in. And so apparently that's the way it looks like uh, without probably the guy standing there. I'm not sure he was there that morning. But otherwise, Mary was coming to this tomb. And uh, when she showed up, uh, she, she was in for a startling uh, surprise. Now, why was she going? Well, you have to go back to her story. When Jesus met her, it says that she was filled with seven demons. Now, it doesn't go into any explanation of what that meant in her life, but I just imagine, reading between the lines, that that probably was not a good thing for Mary. Okay, Being filled with seven demons probably was not so hot. Uh, some of you, maybe using it in a little more of a figurative way, have said, I've had my demons in my life, and that usually doesn't mean a good thing. But I think that we can speculate that Mary probably had a hard time in relationships. You know, demons tend to dampen relationships. She probably had a hard time interacting with people. Maybe she had some sort of loose moral kinds of things that were going on in her life. We could probably guess that's the case. Maybe she had some addictions, some things like that. Her life was not running smoothly with seven demons in it. And it says that Jesus comes basically and he throws those demons out of her life. And so for the first time, she is now able to see things straight. She's sort of saved out of that life. 
Jesus believes in her so much that he invites her to become part of, her, of his little small band of followers. You have the 12 disciples, but you have other people that follow Jesus around. Mary Magdalene is one of them. And the other thing we learn about Mary is she actually becomes kind of a leader in that group. Uh, we know that because her name is listed first. When names were listed, she's very often listed first. And that's an indication in that culture that she may have been a leader. Peter's listed first a lot, too. So anyway, Mary was sort of given a whole new identity. She came with seven demons, and Jesus actually brought her into his community and made her a leader. And now, now, uh, everything has changed. We, We learn that Mary stood by Jesus at the cross. I mean, most of the disciples had run away. Mary actually stood with him. And I think in her mind she was thinking, this guy stood with me when no one else would. I will stand with him even if everyone else runs away. And then on that morning, she comes to the tomb because he had not been embalmed properly. Friday had happened so quickly, and then the Sabbath was the next day when nobody could do any work, that Jesus' body had not been properly embalmed. And in that culture, that was a huge disrespect. And so I think, again, Mary said, he respected me when no one else did. I will respect him, and I'll make sure that his body is taken care of. And she shows up to the tomb, and the huge surprise is that it's empty. Jesus is not there. Now, Mary, being a woman full of faith, right, she immediately believes that he's risen from the dead, right? No. What does she think? Somebody's stolen him. Somebody ripped Jesus off. And she's going to get to the bottom of it. She's going around. Who took Jesus? She runs back, tells Peter and John. Peter and John come, check it out. Sure enough, Jesus is gone. She comes back to the tomb. And that's where we pick up this story. If you have, again, your Bibles, John 20, verse 11. It says, now Mary stood outside of the tomb crying. That word for crying actually is sobbing. She was sobbing uncontrollably. Something broke in Mary. I mean, maybe it was the pressure of what had happened over the last few days. Maybe it was the shock of not having Jesus' body in the tomb. Maybe it was just a collection of all of her hopes and dreams were dashed with Jesus dying. The person that had given her value, the person that had stood with her, the person who gave her respect was gone. Now my life is over. What am I going to do? All of this just caves in on Mary. And Mary stands outside of the tomb and she is sobbing. Have you ever been there? Has your life ever caved in? Maybe it was one colossal circumstance. Maybe it was a series of things that just broke you down. But you got to that place where it's like, I don't know that I can go on. I just don't have any more hope. There's just nothing more inside of me. Well, that's where Mary is. And now things get kind of crazy. She wept, she bent over, she looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels uh, in white, seated where Jesus' body had been. Don't see those every day. One at the head, the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away. This is so interesting. She doesn't even acknowledge that they're angels. I don't know if she got it or didn't get it. Maybe it was on reflection. I think they were angels. But anyway, she just goes on. They've taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they've put him. Uh, At this, she turned around, and she saw Jesus standing there. 
but she did not realize that it was Jesus. And this is really an interesting thing because she had been with Jesus now for quite a while. I mean, how many times has she seen him? This is remarkable that she doesn't recognize him, but for whatever reason, and some commentators say she was crying so hard that her eyes were blurred out. I think that's ridiculous, but some people say that. Other people just say Jesus didn't look exactly the same because other people didn't recognize him either. Uh, Whatever it was, she doesn't recognize him. This has not become personal for her at this point. He's just another person. In fact, as it goes on, we read, uh, Jesus asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener. Now that is so precious. Mary, can you, uh, later she's talking to John. She goes, you know, when you're writing your gospel, this is kind of embarrassing. I thought he was the gardener. (laughs) There's only one person that could have told John that story. That was Mary. And I thought he was the gardener. Um, And then uh, she said to him, thinking he was the gardener, Sir, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where where you put him, and I will get him. She's still on her mission to embalm his body. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. All of a sudden, her eyes were open. Interesting, the questions Jesus asks. Why are you crying? I wonder how many times he had come to Mary when she was at her wit's end, when things were caving in, when again she just felt like "Ah, everybody's against me. And he would come to her and say, Mary, why are you crying? It's okay. I'm with you. This is going to work out. We're going to make it. How many times had he said that to her? And then he said, who are you looking for? And I think what he's pointing out is he, she, he said, Mary, you're looking for a dead guy. And there's no dead guy around here. And then he just calls her name, Mary. And all of a sudden, it's like scales fall off of her eyes. She sees him. Oh, my gosh. It's Jesus. He's alive. He's here. Immediately, it becomes personal for Mary. The story goes on to say that she grabs him, which is such a, again, Mary, Mary has to be telling the story. She's, it's just her and Jesus. And so she goes, I just couldn't help myself. I just grabbed him. Oh, my gosh, you're here. This is so awesome. And Jesus says kind of an interesting thing. He says, do not hold on to me, for I have yet to ascend to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my Father, your Father, and to my God and your God. And this is such a cool thing, because here's, I think, what Jesus is saying. Mary, you think you need to hold on to me and never let me go again because you're so worried that I'm going to disappear. I'm telling you right now, I'm not going to disappear. I'm alive. I'm here. I will always be here for you again. You don't have to worry about me leaving. I'm here. And Mary, furthermore, I'm giving you one other identity shift. I want you, being the first person who's seen me, risen, which is amazing, I want you to tell everyone else. You go tell Peter and John and the guys, I'm alive. She's been called the apostle to the apostles, the sent one to the sent ones. Amazing. Jesus took a woman whose life had caved in, and because he's alive, it becomes personal to I met with a woman a while back. It's when I was in South Carolina, and uh, she was 
uh, she was going through a very hard thing. But what had happened before that is her best friend, and they had gone to church together forever and ever, had become a Christian. And what was so weird, and in the South, you'll know this, because everyone's a Christian in the South, in the Bible Belt. But uh, when her friend became a Christian, she said, what do you mean you become a Christian? We've always been a Christian. We've always been Christians. And her friend said, yeah, but you know what? It was never personal to me. It was just that I believed some kind of thing. Jesus was never in my life, and something's happened now, and Jesus is in my life, and I've really accepted him, and it's a day-to-day kind of thing. And uh, this woman just couldn't totally understand that. And then she was diagnosed with a brain tumor. And she had uh, children. And immediately, moms, you can relate. She She pictured her children being raised without a mother. And she came in to see me because she said, listen, I accepted Jesus a long time ago. And I've gone to church, like, my whole life. I believe the right thing. But when I look at my friend, I see something that I don't have. It's personal to her. Jesus, like, walks with her day after day after day. And I don't have that. And right now, that's what I need. I don't just need a belief. I need a partner. And that day, everything changed for her. And Jesus became her partner. Jesus said, Jesus, you know, I've always believed that you rose from the dead. Now I'm going to live like you're alive, like you're here. And it changed everything for her. Do you need that in your life? Maybe you're sitting here and your life is caved in and you believe the right thing, but Jesus is not a partner. The resurrection means he's alive. He's here. He's with you. You don't go through this alone. That's what it means. Second person, guy named Thomas, skeptic. Skeptic. So interesting. Jesus chose him as one of the 12. Faith is big in Jesus' life. I don't know if you've ever noticed he talks a lot about faith. He chooses a guy that's a skeptic, a guy that has a hard time mustering up the faith. So interesting. And so Jesus dies, and he rises again, and on that first Easter day, he makes a bunch of appearances to people, and at one point he comes in and he sees the disciples, and they're all together, all except for this one guy named Thomas. Bummer for Thomas. He's visiting Aunt Esther or something like that. He's not with the disciples when Jesus shows up. Jesus comes in, has a little get-together with the disciples, They go out of the room, they go find Thomas, and they'll say, you're never going to believe what happened. Jesus came and he appeared to us. And Thomas said, you're right. I don't believe you. I don't think that happened. In fact, unless I look, and not even look, unless I put my fingers in the holes, unless I put my hand in the side, no way, no way. Thomas asks for more proof than any other person in the New Testament ever asked about Jesus. And it's so funny because he'd walked around with him for three years. He totally did not believe. He was a skeptic. And some of you are skeptics. And you're sitting here in church just going, why am I here? I don't even believe this stuff. This is crazy. And I want to tell you the coolest thing. Jesus loves that you're here. No, seriously, he totally loves. He loves that you're a skeptic. And I'll I'll show you why. So we turn into the story, John 20, we're up to uh, verse 26. 
It says a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and this time Thomas is with him. He's like, I'm not letting you guys out of my sight. If he's showing up again, I want to be there. So Thomas is there, and the doors are locked, and Jesus comes and stood among them. I just love that. doesn't even give the detail that he like, walked through the door, but that's kind of a cool thing. He says, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, points out Thomas. Now you'd think if he's pointing out Thomas, he's going to go, Thomas, really? Come on. Pal, one of the 12. Muster up a little. You're such a faith wimp, Thomas. Really, come on. Faith challenge, pal. He doesn't say that. He says, peace be with you. And he doesn't say, Thomas, you got to believe without any evidence. He goes, no, Thomas, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go ahead and take your finger and stick it in this hole. Come on. And I want you to take your hand and put it right in my side. All right? We're going to get this settled once and for all. And it's so cool. Thomas doesn't do it. He just looks. He's just like any of the other disciples. He goes, okay, I believe. I believe, I believe. And in fact, this is so cool. What he says is he says, my Lord and my God. He calls Jesus that. And you might think, well, what else are you going to say? Oh, my God. I mean, anyone would say, oh, my Lord, my God. No, no. Let Let me explain this. Jesus, up to this point, has been called the Son of God a lot, the Holy One of God, God's Messiah. You know what he's never been called? God. Never. Yahweh. No one has made that identification with Jesus. You know who's the first person? The skeptic. The skeptic looks at Jesus and says, My Lord, my God. Jesus loves skeptics. Because when a skeptic believes, a skeptic believes. That belief is stronger than any belief. That belief is the kind of belief that other people sort of just camp on and say, I don't know what I believe, but he believes it so much, she believes it so much, I'm in. That's Thomas. My Lord, my God. Years ago, I married a couple, and uh, he had been raised in a Christian family. His mother had died a very difficult death. He had never become a Christian. Uh, raised it in it his whole life. Married a woman who was a Christian. They started going to church. He was very actively involved in our church. Great guy. He was a skeptic. He would argue. He would push back. He got the most interesting position. Listen to the position God gave him in our church. He was the PowerPoint person, which means he had to sit in all three of our services, one after the other, and put the slides up that all had scripture on it and listen to me teach Hour after hour after hour. You think that there's a hell? Yes, there is. All right. So anyway, he's just like, whoa, whoa. And God just over really months and years, months and years, just kept showing him over and over and over again. Just keep looking. Just keep looking. I'll prove you. I'll prove myself to you. And then the day came where he came to me. This was so great. And he said, Kevin, I think it's time for me to get baptized. And I'm like, what? Man of great faith, what? Mark, do you know you need to be a Christian before you do that? He said, I know. I said, Mark, are you telling me? Absolutely, I believe. Uh, Two weeks ago, Liz in South Carolina sent me an email. He said, I need prayer, Kevin. Elisa and I are going through something that's very difficult. Didn't tell me exactly what he is. He said, it's at the beginning of a long, hard journey. I know that. 
but there's only one thing you need to know. This is so great. He goes, we still love God, and we are holding to our faith. That's a skeptic. A skeptic that Jesus turns, because Jesus is alive. And all he says to Thomas, and all he said to Mark, just keep looking. If you search, you will find me, because I am real, and I'm alive. And if you keep your mind open, you will find me. And I want to tell you, for those of you that are skeptics here today, that's all Jesus says is just keep looking. If I'm alive, you're going to find me. If you'll just keep your mind open, if you keep looking, you will find me. And when you do, you will have an amazing faith and an amazing story. Third person is Peter. Peter's the leader of the disciples. He is the man. And you know what? He thinks it. He thinks he's the man. He's a little arrogant. He is the guy that is always giving the answers. He's the guy who's always stepping into the mess. He's the guy who's rebuking Jesus when Jesus gets a little off. You know, that happens from time to time, and Peter's going to set him straight. Peter is a great, colorful character, and he's a little arrogant. And one of the ways that we know that is because as the time is getting short and Jesus is getting closer to the cross, uh, Jesus starts telling him, I'm going to die. I'm going to be captured. I'm going to be crucified. It's going to be ugly. And you know what Peter says? Not on my watch. Not while I'm around. If they're going to you, they're going to have to go through me first. I'm telling you that right now. And so he basically stands up and he says, even if everybody else runs around, Jesus, you can count on me. I'm the man. And Peter, uh, Jesus looks at Peter with a smile and says, Peter, it's not going to go the way you think. You're not really the man. So the night comes. Peter's put into this pressure situation. Jesus is captured. Things are going bleak. And Peter keeps thinking, okay, time for me to rally, time for me to rally. And he freezes. And in fact, people come to him and they just say, weren't you with him? And he's like, no. Are you sure? You, you have the same like, you know, dialect as Jesus. No. And finally, a, sa- a slave girl, a little like nothing in that society. Uh, not nothing to God, but in that society, not much. Says, you were with him. He cusses her out. I did not know that man. I don't know that guy. And it's so great the way the the story plays out. Timing is everything. Right at that point, Jesus actually looks across the courtyard, catches Peter's eye. Peter sees him right as he denies him for the third time. And then if you know the story, a rooster crows. And that's kind of significant. And Peter, it says, goes out and he weeps bitterly. Have you ever failed? Failure is bitter like nothing else. Because on top of the consequence of not coming through, on top of the consequence of all what falls apart because you didn't do what you were going to do, you have guilt to deal with because it's only your fault. Have you ever failed like that? You couldn't blame anyone else? It's a relationship that went south, and you wanted to blame the other person, but in the end you knew... This was on you. I blew it. A business that went belly up. I wish I could blame my partner. I wish I could blame... I can't. It was on me. 
some endeavor that you gave so much effort to. And it just fell apart. And there's nobody to blame but you. That is such bitterness. That feels so bad. Years ago, we were raising our boys, and teenage years were a challenging time for all of us with our boys. And uh, I remember one night, something had happened, and I had always prided myself on being a great father, and I totally lost it. I mean, I pushed them around. I shoved them down on the floor. I picked them up and shook them. I screamed in their face. I am so glad there was not a videotape running of that scene. But there is in my mind, it was a failure, total failure. Have you ever been there, that kind of failure? So what does Jesus do? So interesting. Jesus had appeared to Peter twice before, at least two times before. There is something that's still very impersonal for Peter and Jesus. There's some huge wall between them. And so Jesus, or Peter actually leaves Jerusalem, goes up to Galilee, goes fishing again. He was a fisherman. I'm sure what he was thinking is, you know what? I kind of struck out as a disciple. I can still fish. He goes out with his friends. They go fishing all night. Guess what? They catch nothing. He's even a failure now as a fisherman. He looks back at the beach as the sun is coming up. They've been out all night. And there's this guy on the beach. And he yells out, Hey! How's it going out there? Catch any fish? I don't know what Peter said. We probably can't have it in a G-rated message. But something, and so uh, he says, uh, this voice on the beach says, why don't you throw your net on the other side of the boat? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Like the fish can tell. The left side from the right side. But for some reason, they humor the guy. They throw the net on the other side. And there's so many fish in the net, it starts to sink the boat. All of a sudden, they look back at the beach. (laughs) Who is that guy? And they know. It's Jesus. And I love this part of the story. Peter is so thrilled and excited or whatever, he actually, they start to row in. He just jumps in the water. He's going to swim in. And it's so great. If you read the story, the boat gets in at the same time he gets in. He's like a really slow swimmer. But anyway, they all arrive. And there's this moment where Peter is just like standing with Jesus and they're alone before the other guys come up. And you just got to imagine that's the most awkward silence. What do you say when you've totally let somebody down, when you have completely failed? They have breakfast, and after breakfast, there's a little conversation that goes on between Jesus and Peter. And you read it in John 21. Again, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Let me read it to you. It says, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Probably pointing to the fish. Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. What is Jesus doing? Is he actually letting Peter back into the game? After that failure, he's actually going to give Peter something else to do? Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. 
Jesus said, feed my sheep. Now, why did Jesus do that? Why three times would he say that to him? I mean, it's hurting Peter's feelings. It's like, I told you once, I told you twice. How many times do I have to tell you? How many times had Peter denied Jesus? Three times. Peter, you failed. You're back in the game. Peter, you failed, but you're back in the game. Peter, you failed. I want you back in the game. Jesus is driving home the point. Your failure, Peter, is not fatal. You get another chance. You get another chance. I still need you on the team. And in fact, an amazing prediction is given by Jesus there. He just simply says, Peter, you know what? You're going to follow me the rest of the days of your life. And in the end, they're going to capture you. They're going to arrest you. They're going to torture you. And they're going to crucify you. And you know what, Peter? You'll never deny me again. You'll never fail again. Because I'm with you. Because this is personal now, Peter. It's you and me. If you failed and you're sitting here, maybe only you know it, or maybe everyone knows it. Jesus sits here and says, you're not out of the game. I will partner with you. We'll pull this thing back together. It's okay. I need you. I need you to be on my team. You see, the reason that Easter is practical, the reason the resurrection matters, is because Jesus is actually alive. He's actually here. He's actually sitting next to you. He actually is going to leave with you, and he'll go to lunch with you, and he'll be at work with you tomorrow or at school. He'll be with you in your high times and your low times. He'll be there when you need guidance. He'll be there every time you pray. He'll be there when you need power. He'll be there to clean up the mess when you make a mistake. It's very personal with Jesus. If you've never made that commitment to Jesus, it isn't a hard thing to do. You kind of know what you need to know. He died for your sins. He rose from the grave. But if you've never invited him to be personal, that can happen today. It's just a prayer. It's just a prayer. It's just opening up your heart. And I want to do one last thing, because as I went through Mary, Thomas, and Peter, some of you resonated with those people. And I want to pray especially for you. Okay? So, here's the first group. If you have been in a place where your life has fallen apart, where it's become decimated, where some terrible news happened, or somebody let you down in a way you never thought, and you're just like, oh my gosh. You're just like Mary. You're grief-stricken. In a minute, I'm going to ask you to stand because I'm going to want to pray with you, okay? But you're not going to stand alone because some of you are Thomases. Some of you are skeptics by nature, and you're sitting here, and maybe you're kind of frustrated. I wish I could believe. I want to believe. I like what my friends that believe have, and I just can't get there right now. I want you to stand, because I want to pray for you, because you're in an incredible journey, and I just so much don't want you to stop till you get to the end, because the end will be amazing. 
And the end will be amazing. So I don't want you to stop. And I'm going to ask you in a second to stand too. And then some of you have failed. And you know exactly what Peter was going through. And you felt that bitterness before. And what you need to know is that God still has you in the game. He still has you in the game. You're still an important part of his team. And he's picking you up and he's saying, we'll do this together. But you're not quitting on me. You're not quitting. You're in the game. So if that is you, if you feel like you're Mary, if you feel like you're Thomas, if you feel like you're Peter, if you feel like I could use some prayer right now, would you just stand up? Just stand right where you are. I'm not going to have you do anything strange. Just stand up. I would love to pray for you. I would love to pray with you. Let's pray. Lord, these people show courage and they show faith as they stand. They don't stand for me. They stand for you because they believe you're here, that this matters, that you make a difference. And I pray for those people whose life has caved in. And I can't even believe to feel the grief that they feel today. But you brought them here because you had something to say. And one of the major things you're saying right now is I stand with you. You don't go through this alone. You feel hopeless, but there's hope. You feel alone, but there's a partner. I'm with you. I hold you. We'll go through this together. And some of you are skeptics. And maybe it's even frustrated you. And yet here you are. You're here. You came. You have that much faith. And Jesus is simply saying, Jesus says to you, just look, just look. If I'm real, I'll prove myself. If I'm real, I'll prove myself. Jesus, thank you so much that you do that. You do that for us day after day after day. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for the conviction that we will have one day. Some of you have failed. And it is so raw right now. You are hesitant to stand up. You didn't want anyone to think that you failed. And yet you stood up. And Jesus met you. And he says, it's okay. I knew you would fail before you failed. And I'm here to hold you. And you're back in the game. And we'll do this together. And I'll pick you up again. And Jesus, we are so grateful. We are a needy people. And the fact that you are alive is everything. It makes it personal and meaningful. And we thank you for that. And Jesus, it's because you're alive that we talk to you today. And it's in your name that we pray to our Heavenly Father. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Mariner's Church in Huntington Beach. For more information about Mariner's, visit www.marinerschurch.org.